Good morning, Lighthouse family. We have a lot to praise God for today. We don't walk according to our feelings or what we see, but we worship and praise because of who he is. And the good news is, if God before us, who or what can stand against us? Let's sing about it. Water you turned into wine. Water you turned into wine. Open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you. None like you. Into the darkness you shine. And out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you.
to stand in his name. Jesus, we do thank you and praise you and give you glory and honor this morning. We thank you, God, that you gave us a cornerstone to stand on, even in times when the world around us is going crazy. God, we know that you hold all the keys, all the answers, all the ways that we should be. So, God, as we stand with as God's people this day, we proclaim your peace, your love, your honor, your glory. God, we stand before you in that throne to say, Heavenly Father, we know that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. May you always guard and protect us and watch over us. For all those at home right now who are suffering, who have ailments, may this great physician reach into those homes and touch them. May they feel the healing power of the Holy Spirit. For those who are in despair or discouraged this day, may they rest in Christ alone, knowing that in him we can stand and we will stand because of we know who our God is. And Father, may you touch our pastor this morning as he brings us his word, your word to us. Father, may we be blessed, may our hearts be open, and may we stand before the throne. In Jesus' holy name we pray. And all God's people said amen. 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 Ah. Well, good morning. You guys, everybody having a nice, mellow beginning to 2021, right? Um. Yeah, you know, we, we said last week that the dividing line between 2020 and 2021 is kind of arbitrary, and that doesn't necessarily mean that life is going to go back to normal, and that's certainly true. Um, and one of the reasons why we have decided to journey this year through the Gospel of John is because we want to walk with our rabbi. We want to learn from him and allow his example to shape our example, so that we can have a better idea of how to reflect the heart of our God into the world that so desperately needs authentic examples of, of hope, because a lot of us have lost our hope. And if we focus on our circumstances, if we focus on what's going on in our finances, if we focus on what's going on in the political realm, if we focus on what's going on even within our own families, we will get discouraged and lose heart. But if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, then we will have the ability to, to traverse through the storms of life, and they're coming. Even when we're not aware of it, they're coming. And when those waves sideswipe us, like they did earlier this week, we will not be overcome because our eyes are fixed on him and he's the one who keeps us above the waves. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to begin a, a, most of a year-long journey walking with Jesus. And we're going to begin today in John 1, but before we get there, I just want you to consider for a moment a moment in your life that was meaningful. And this could be something that was awe-inspiring. Maybe it was a trip you went on and it was something you remember seeing, a sunset that just took your breath away or a, a vista that you had never seen before and it was just awe-inspiring. Or maybe that was, it was a life-changing moment, perhaps the birth of your first child or, or, or a wedding. Or, or maybe for you it was um, a, a moment when you finally overcame a long journey that you finally succeeded, you graduated or something big happened and it was a moment of excitement. So are you thinking of something, a moment in your life? This isn't rhetorical, I actually want you to think of it. 
Now, with that moment in mind, imagine if I handed you a piece of paper about this size, and I said, I want you to write down, for somebody who wasn't there, I want you to write down a story that helps them to, to experience what you experienced, helps them understand why it was such an impactful moment. What kind of details would you include and what details would you omit? Because the reality is you don't have a lot of space here. It's not a very big piece of paper. Sure, you can write on both sides, but you have a limited amount of space, so what are you going to write? Well, that, that's going to, you know, really come down to one huge question. Who are you writing to, right? Because the audience that you choose to write to will determine what you end up writing. You're going to probably, if, let's say that, you, you know, if you're writing to people who know you and, and have been there before or have experienced that before, you're going to probably articulate things differently than to somebody that has never been there or experienced what you have experienced. It, it, you're going to probably use different language based upon how old your, your intended audience is. I'm certainly going to articulate the story differently from my children than I might my wife or I might a complete stranger. The reason I share this with you, the reason why I'm asking you to consider this, is that this is the challenge that each of the gospel writers had when they set out to write their best articulation of this miraculous moment when God became flesh and entered into our reality and journeyed with them for a number of years. They had so many experiences with Jesus, so many things that they could have included, but they had a limited amount of space, and so they had to omit things. They had to structure their story in such a way that it elicited the emotion, it elicited the, the feelings that they were hoping to elicit in their intended audience. And that's why we have four Gospels instead of one. Because each of these Gospels is like a different camera angle on the football field. Some of you guys were watching football yesterday. Go Rams, happy that they won, right? And on any given play, there's never one camera angle. There's always multiple camera angles because one camera will see one thing and another camera angle will see a, a, a very different thing. And they're both of the same moment. But you see different perspectives. And so it's important to almost, if you want to have a three-dimensional understanding of what happened, you need to have multiple camera angles. And that's what the Gospels give us. Multiple perspectives on the same person's life. The same moments of his interaction with his disciples. And, and <clears throat> that's why the first three, now Matthew and Luke kind of build off of Mark's rendition. Mark wrote his Gospel first. Matthew and Luke used that as their foundation, and they added their own personal experiences, plus kind of their own goals for what they were trying to help articulate to their intended audience. And then we get John. John comes from a very different perspective. He just kind of approaches this whole thing radically differently than the other three do. And that's because of who John is writing to. Just, it's always helpful for us to kind of ground what we're reading in its original context. John was writing from the city of Ephesus toward the end of his life. 
He is the, he lived longer than any of the other disciples, any of the other eyewitnesses. He was the longest living disciple of Jesus. He outlived Paul, who had been killed for his unwillingness to renounce his faith. He has already been stranded on the island of Patmos where he penned the, the book of Revelation. This understanding of the end times and what God is doing to a people who are scattered to give them hope in the midst of when it feels like the world is winning and the emperors of, of, of the world have all the power and he writes the book of Revelation to encourage them. But now, in the twilight of his life, he is writing to a community of, of Christ followers in and around the city of Ephesus. Most of them are Gentile because he knows his time is short. And there have been generations of new believers that have been added to the church. And as kind of the elder statesman of this region and this community, he has had the opportunity to share his own experiences of walking with Jesus with these new believers. But he knows he doesn't have much longer. And so he sits down to begin to articulate what he experienced with Jesus so that future generations would be able to have his perspective of what he experienced. And, and he actually articulates towards the end of his letter what he was hoping to accomplish. This is in John chapter 20, verse 30. You don't need to turn here. It's on the, on the screen. We read, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Again, he didn't have all the space in the world to record all of it. But... These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's his goal, that they would place their faith in Jesus as their Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer, as the Son of God, and in placing their faith in him, they would come to have life, and not just any life, eternal life. So that's his purpose in writing. But John has one really important thing that he wants to make sure is very clear right from the outset in his gospel. He wants to make sure that people recognize that Jesus wasn't just some good person that God said, hey, you'll do, and, and I'm going to use you to bring about my purpose and my plans. He wasn't just the right guy with the right temperament, born in the right season of history so that God could use him. John wants to make abundantly clear to everybody who reads his gospel that Jesus was eternal, that he was an eternal part of the triune Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, unlike Matthew, who writing to Jews decides he wants to make sure that his audience knows that Jesus comes from the line of David, and so he starts with the genealogy, unlike Mark, who just wants to get right into Jesus' ministry, so he basically begins with Jesus' baptism, which is the launching point for his public ministry. Unlike Luke, who begins with Jesus' birth, the Christmas story that we just read on Christmas Eve, John decides to go all the way back to the beginning, back before the first line of Genesis, because he wants to make sure that he grounds Jesus 
with the understanding that Jesus isn't just a human being that was born and God picked him. Jesus was divine. He was part of the triune Godhead. And so that's why he opens his gospel with these words that many of us know really well. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John wants us to make very clear that Jesus isn't just a human being that was picked by God. Jesus is and always has been part of the Godhead. And I know that it's confusing. The, the Trinity is one of those very confusing things, but Jesus is part of God. And so we can't just say he was used by God. He was God. And he was with God. In the very beginning, before anything was, Jesus was. And this, by the way, was one of the first questions that I really grappled with when I began to make my own faith my faith, rather than just taking my parents' word for it or my pastor's word for it. One of the first questions I asked is, how can Jesus be both God and the Son of God? Right? Maybe he was just a good person. There have been entire theologies that have tried to say, well, Jesus was just a man that God picked. There are entire religious groups that would suggest that Jesus was just a good person that God used as his redeemer, but he was never divine in and of himself. And that would absolutely be contrary to the testimony of John in the very first verses. But that's not all he's saying. Let's read this again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, do you, do you hear a little bit of uh, kind of familiarity, John 1, with Genesis 1? Remember the words of Genesis 1. It goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Do you remember how God created everything. He spoke it into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be land. Let the, the waters part and create boundaries for the land, and there was land. Let there be life. He begins to speak the different life, plant life and animal life, and then, you know, he speaks it all into existence. Well, what John is trying to get us to understand right here at the beginning of his gospel it's that Jesus isn't just part of the Godhead. He is the living embodiment of that divine word through which God spoke the world into existence. Which means that Jesus didn't just come to redeem the world. Jesus actually created the world and he holds it together. So he is coming into the world to redeem that which he already made. He already participated in. And by the way, John isn't the only person to make this point. Can we throw up Colossians for just a moment? These are Paul's words written in the, in the book of Colossians. He writes this, the Son is the image of the invisible God. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. 
all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we've got this reminder that Jesus is more than just a good person. He's more than just God's pick of the litter that he can use to bring about his purpose and his plans. Jesus has been and always will be God in human flesh. He is divine. And if you ever have that question, well, maybe Jesus was just a person. No, he's so much more than that. And John wants his readers to know that right from the beginning. He is not just coming to redeem the world. He created the world. He holds the world together. And now he continues in verse 4 because he has another theme that he wants to introduce, a theme that is going to run throughout his entire gospel. We read in verse 4, In him, in Christ, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this idea or this theme of light is really, really important to John. He's going to come back to it again and again and again, which means that we're going to get to spend lots of time to talk about light and talk about how Jesus was the light of the world and how we get to be light of the world. But let me just give you a, a taster of what's to come. In John's gospel, light is juxtaposed with darkness, right? And in a lot of ways, he treats the light of Jesus and the darkness of this world as two competing powers. And just for sake of time, we're going to go deeper in this in the coming weeks, but, but for sake of time, darkness is humanity's broken way of dealing with life in this broken, sin-scarred world. And guys, we got a, 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 it was on full view this, for us this week, the brokenness of how we in this world deal with life in a broken world. Power struggles and finger pointing and anger and uh, just like ripping people apart. It was painful to watch. It was, it was difficult to know how, what is my part as a Christ follower in the midst of all of this. I don't know about you. I can speak for myself. It was really difficult to know what is my role in all of this. How can I represent Christ when it feels like our world and particularly our country that we love is just tearing itself apart at the seams. So there's darkness and it is present in the world. And guys, it's present in each of us. It is our own fleshly knee-jerk response in how to do life and how to build our own little kingdoms and how to position ourselves so that we feel better about ourselves, often at the expense of other people. This is the darkness. And we're all very familiar with it because we have lived with it. And into this darkness comes the light, which is God's way of living, his values, of his kingdom. And Jesus came to perfectly epitomize them, to, to live them out. And as much as the darkness tried to shut him down and overwhelm him and push him back, John says it couldn't. It never could. The light always drives out the darkness. The darkness doesn't drive out the light. And that's the hope that we have 
when it feels, and we look around and we go, it feels like the darkness is winning. The light of truth, the light of grace, the light that came into the world in the form of Jesus Christ will always overcome the darkness. But that doesn't mean that the darkness will necessarily submit to it. Now, verses 6 through verses 8, John makes a really interesting choice. He takes the focus off of Jesus for a moment, and he puts it onto this guy, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Now, we're not going to get into it today. There's a reason why he does it, and we're going to talk about why he does that next week. Very specifically, because of the audience he's writing to, there's a reason why he jumps off of his focus on Jesus and onto John the Baptist a couple of times in this introduction. We'll talk about why next week. But let's keep focusing on this idea of the light coming into the world and driving back the darkness. So let's jump down to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and although the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So even here at the beginning, even though we know that the darkness can never overcome the light, the light will always drive back the darkness, John also acknowledges that not everybody who is shrouded in darkness will embrace the light. And we know this to be true, right? Have you ever been sleeping in a room and somebody walks in the room and flicks on the light? Is your knee-jerk response to say thank you or to cover yourself up as if they've just gouged your eyes out and are physically attacking you? That's at least the approach my kids take every single morning we try to get them ready for school, right? It's like I am attacking them. And in the same way, the world, we have become so used to the darkness, so used to living in it and navigating it and stumbling through it that when the light shines and it exposes our own imperfections, and let's be honest, it does, There is a large part of even us that want nothing to do with the light. We want to run from it because it's just easier to live business as usual, to feel like we're doing fine, than to be exposed. And so it's no wonder why so many image bearers of God who have been shaped by their time in the darkness run from the light. Again, we're going to go much, much deeper on that when we get a little bit further into the Gospel of John. But this is a theme that runs throughout. And yet not everybody, not everybody runs from the light. Not everybody rejects Jesus' advance into this world. And now John says in verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Although it's painful to move towards the light, although it's painful to allow the light to expose our own imperfections, it's really the only way we can heal. And for those who allow the light to, to expose us, for those who move toward the light, we will begin to recognize that although the ways of Jesus feel so contrary to the ways of this world, 
turn the other cheek? Are you kidding me? No, you return curse for curse, insult for insult. Otherwise, you know, they're going to beat us. They're going to win. The way of Jesus is so radically contrary to the world, but those who lean in and trust him more than they trust our own knee-jerk responses will find that in his example is life. And we will find our freedom when we come into the light, even though it feels like death. Even though it feels like openly making ourselves vulnerable. Even though it feels like the last thing that we want to do. It is the only way to find life that is really, truly life. And then he continues in verse 14. The word... This creative power through which the world was spoken into existence became flesh. And he made his dwelling amongst us. We, and now John is talking of himself and the other disciples, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son. There's that term. For those of you who grew up with like the King James Version, only begotten Son of God in John 3.16, there's that word again, although it's here translated one and only Son. But God's only begotten Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, last week, I, I, I reminded us of what the Israelites experienced when they were walking through the wilderness. And how they had hope, even then and when it felt like they weren't in control. Remember what Moses' saving grace was? That he didn't have to lead the people and set the, direc the direction for them. That all he had to do was point to the presence of God that was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And, and you remember this picture of that, that cloud settling down in the midst of his people. And there was a tent that they would set up right beneath the, the cloud. It was called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And this was the place that Moses and others would go to be with God. And when the cloud moved, they would move. And when the cloud stopped, they would set up the tabernacle first. And then they would set up all of the tribes around the tabernacle so that God was literally, truly in their midst. And he was the one leading them through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Now that's an important picture for us to keep in our mind. Because when John says these words, the word took on flesh and made his dwelling with us. The term that the NIV translates made his dwelling is actually tabernacled. So that idea of God being with his people in the wilderness is exactly the same idea of Jesus becoming the physical embodiment of God's presence on the earth in the midst of his people, even though some of them didn't recognize him. And this is a really important theme that is going to come out again and again and again as we journey through the Gospel of John. Because if Jesus is the physical embodiment of God with his people, then if people want to know how would God have us proceed, how would he have us live, we don't need to try to look to the stars, we don't need to try to watch the clouds and try to discern which one is God trying to lead us. All we need to do is look to Jesus. 
And something that I'm going to have to try to remind us again and again that John is trying to instill in us right from the beginning here is that when you look at Jesus, you're seeing God. So you want to know what God is like? Just look to Jesus. You want to know what God would have us do? Just watch how Jesus responds when people curse him. Watch how Jesus responds when unclean, sick people come around him. Watch how Jesus responds when the religious insiders begin to chirp and tell him that what he's doing is wrong, that, they, that he's, mis, he's maligning the heart of God when in fact he's revealing the heart of God and they've completely missed it. Just watch how Jesus responds. In verse 15 is, is another point where John takes his focus off of Jesus for a moment and focuses it on John the Baptist. We will come back to that next week, so let's skip down to verse 16. Because here we read that out of Christ's fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And now he juxtaposes the grace that was given through Moses, through the law, and the grace that is given through Jesus, through the new covenant. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And this is really important for John for us to get. God revealed to his people, his image bearers, the, the, the nation of Israel, he revealed what it looked like to live as his people. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the first four were focused on their relationship with him. The last six of those laws were focused on their relationships with one another. And that, those Ten Commandments plus all of the other commandments that he gave were intended to help them to begin to recognize this is what it looks like to live as my people in this world, to live as priests who radiate my heart to a world that is living in open rebellion. But that law was never intended to be the stairway that the Jews climbed to attain their rightful place with God to restore their relationship back to him because nobody could keep that law perfectly other than God and the human flesh and Jesus Christ, right? Nobody else. And so although that was a grace given by God to give direction to the people on how to represent him, the grace that Jesus brought is so much better because not only does Jesus... illustrate, reveal who God really is and his values and his heart for this world just in the way that he lived. But he did what the law could never do. He, through the cross, restored people back to relationship with God through faith, not by works, so that nobody could beat their chest and say, I've done it. I have made myself right with God. So through Moses came a grace of direction, but through Jesus came a grace of authentic revelation of who God is and what God is about, as well as an ability to be restored back into relationship with him. And then in verse 18, Paul comes full circle as he kind of wraps up his thesis introduction. This is his thesis paragraph that we're introduced to themes that will run throughout the rest of his gospel. And in verse 18, circles back to where we began, back in verse 1. 
with a declaration of who Jesus is and his eternal existence. We read in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, our only begotten Son, who is himself God. Just in case we didn't hear it the first time, just in case you were really questioning, John, did you really mean that he was really God and not just a really good person that God picked? Who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, Jesus has made the Father known. What John is trying to reiterate to his readers right at the outset is that if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. The way that Jesus talks to people, the way that Jesus acts, the way that Jesus responds when people say things to him that are disrespectful, the way that Jesus handles difficult situations, all of these are a reflection of God's heart. So you want to know what God is like, just look to Jesus. And guys, we need, I need, a better understanding of how God would have us respond because we are in some very interesting times. In a lot of ways, it feels like, it does feel like end times sort of grumblings. It feels like the country that I was born in, in this safe little cocoon that I have lived most of my life in, is beginning to be rent apart how do we, as citizens of the kingdom of God, navigate life within the empire of America that feels like it's in decline? And God, bless this country. God, I thank him that we were born in this country or get to call this country home. But this is not our home. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, first and foremost. And we need to take our directions from him, not from a political party, not from any other leaders, not from our movie stars or our sports stars or, or our neighbors. We can't take our marching orders from social media. We must take our marching orders from our Father God who created us in his image. And so the reason that we are going to take a long, slow journey through the Gospel of John is that my hope is that I and my family that calls Lighthouse home would be discipled to Jesus. Discipleship doesn't look like just learning information about him. Discipleship looks like relationship, which is why when Jesus makes the invitation, come, follow me, that's an invitation into discipleship. Learn from me. Walk with me. Allow my example to begin to shape and mold your perspective on the world and your responses to how the world operates. No, we may not necessarily be confronted with a gal who's been caught in adultery, and of course the guy's not brought along, but she's there, and people saying, we got a stoner. We may not find ourselves in that situation with people asking, how should we respond? But we are certainly going to find ourselves in other awkward conversations in other awkward positions where we're forced to go, how shall I proceed? And guys, we need to have our hearts shaped by the sandpaper that is Jesus' example so that we will become better reflections of our Father in this world. We were made in his image, but we've been sitting in the darkness for so long that we've, our ability to reflect him has been warped. And our spending time with Jesus over this year is going to just be the sandpaper beginning to shave away 
the patina of this world that hinders us from accurately reflecting his heart. That's why we're going to take a long, slow journey through John. I'm grateful that we get to do it together. I will tell you right from the start, I am as much on this journey with you as, as you are. I am learning as we go, and I'm grateful for what he's already revealing. But let us remember who Jesus is. He is more than a good person that God just hand-selected. Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the only one who has ever perfectly reflected the heart of God, so he is the best one to learn from. So don't look to me. Don't look to Jeff. Don't look to Diane or Marge or anybody else for how you should live. At least don't make them the gold standard. Let's look to Jesus as we all follow him. Let's pray. Father God, I'm grateful that you use imperfect people like us to reflect your heart. And we recognize we don't do it perfectly, but we want to do it as accurately, as faithfully as we possibly can. So Jesus, thank you that you took on human flesh, that you tabernacled with us, that you shined the light of truth and grace into this sin-scarred, darkened world. And that you are driving back the darkness. May you drive back the darkness in our own lives. Would, you, would we have the courage not to shrink away when the light of truth convicts us about something in our own lives that is not in alignment with you? Because our desire is that we would be a reflection of your heart in this world, just as Jesus was. So we invite you to help yourself to our lives. Would you begin by shining the light of truth into us so that we can then begin to radiate your light like the moon. Radiate your light even in the darkness, in the darkest hours of the night. Begin to shine in the darkness so that others would find their way to you. That is our prayer. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together. When the year has been unkind And the hearts of the people are broken When the winter is long and wild And life like the earth becomes in the darkest night and there's a light that shines there's a hope that's burning in the shadows and like a seam of gold in the shattered world there is one who Holds it all together. And if you're plagued by anxiety, if your fear of the future's unspoken, if you nurtured your dreams from seed, has failed or been stopped.
stolen in the darkest night he's the light that shines he's the hope that's burning in the shadows and like a seam of gold in the shattered world he's the one who holds it Of the cross, 
that we just sang declare one thing that our hope is not in the things that many of us have placed our hope in over the last decades of our life whether that be our portfolio or the businesses and empires that we've been able to kind of tinker together or in political platforms or politicians or grasp on power our hope if it's in any of those things is going to slough away like sandstone when we put our weight on it. And in this season, as much as it feels like death, what we've been walking through, and it feels like death to me, to have the things that we have hung our hope in shaken to the point that they fall to the ground, it's in moments like this that we need to remember the only place that we can hang our hope the only one that is not and never has been shaken, no matter what the world throws at him. Our Lord, our Savior, Jesus, the image of the invisible God. You want to hold on to your Father? Look to Jesus. You want to know what our Father is like? Look to Jesus. You want to know what your Creator made you to do and how he made you to do it? Look to Jesus. That's why we're going to go for a walk with him. That's why we're going to allow ourselves to be discipled by him, by accepting his invitation to follow him. And guys, I give you permission. If you want to read ahead, you go right ahead, okay? You don't have to wait to find out what happens next. Read ahead. Let his example and God's word begin to shape you into the image that he made you to reflect in this world because we need it. Lord knows we need more accurate ref reflections of the heart of God in this world, in your sphere of influence, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. So please read ahead. And guys, if there's any way that we can pray for you, we want to know so that we can be holding you up. Jack, I saw your prayer for Bob, and we will be praying for him as he journeys through these final days of his life. But if there's a prayer, there's a way that we can lift you up, you just need to email us at pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. And if, there, if you want to de declare your dependence on God, one of the ways we do that is through giving. If you want to give financially, you can do so at lighthousecommunity.com. And there's, a, there's a, a link to how you can give. But guys, I'm so grateful to be on this journey. I am so looking forward to being more shaped into God's image, the image he designed us to reflect and do so by following Jesus this year. Have a wonderful week. Because your name is high. Your name is great.